Strategic Financial Partners presents the Rush Hour Podcast, where the rubber meets the road on the economy, stock market, and personal finance. Now here's your host, Matt Rush. Welcome to the Rush Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rush, and joining me today is Jeremy Van Arkel. Jeremy is the Director of Strategies at Frontier Asset Management and is a member of their investment committee. He's a CFA charter holder, an expert in mutual fund selection, asset allocation, and portfolio optimization. And he's also the host of a podcast called Deconstructing Alpha, which if you're wanting to get in the weeds on a variety of topics around finance, it's a great podcast and I highly recommend it. Jeremy, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm glad to be here. Looking forward to a spirited conversation. That's right. Yeah. So I figured that today we would talk about the elephant in the room, which is inflation. But before we get into that, how about you tell us a little bit about your role as director of strategies at Frontier, maybe a little about who Frontier who Frontier is? Excellent. So Frontier is an independent uh, asset manager. We we manage uh, globally diversified risk managed uh, portfolios. Uh, we we focus our process on risk first. We call it downside first focus. And uh, the, and uh, so we're building portfolios really for a more outcome-driven type investor as opposed to strategic portfolios. Um, and uh, we have a 22-year record. We're completely independent. Uh, we own the company, invest our own money in the same portfolios, and the company is run by investment professionals. So it really is sort of, uh, you know, we kind of feel a little bit like the last uh, boutique, you know. Um and then my role at Frontier is I uh, first and foremost sit on the investment committee, so I oversight uh, the investment process and all the investment staff. Um, and then uh, I do a lot of mutual fund research, specifically in the process. And I sit as a strategist, which would be to really kind of try to cover uh, everything that's going on in the world in a timely fashion and help communicate that to our investment group as well as to the outside world. Excellent. Well, again, I think you're highly qualified to speak about inflation. I appreciate you taking out time from your schedule because uh, I know you've got a lot going on. So let's uh, let's get right to it. We've got 15, 20 minutes here to talk about inflation, and I don't know that we're going to be able to tackle everything in that amount of time. But kind of wanted to to just jump into it. You know, we we went through COVID. We've you know still in the pandemic, but inflation all of a sudden is is here. It, it's been you know, ferocious and it's impacting people in, in a variety of ways. So why, why are we just now having inflation and how is that impacting the average American? Right. That's a really good question. So really, I think this story begins post uh, 2008, right? So the, I think the Fed has a lot to do with this. So um, as you know, all know, in 2008, we really went from sort of a Fed that sought to maybe just control inflation to a Fed that sought to control inflation, um, keep full employment, and really sort of backstop the economy and capital markets. So we've had an easy Fed for 12 to 13 years of very low interest rate policy, QE. Every time the market drops or the economy falters, we see more of that. And uh, and that's helped asset prices to um, really rise steadily. You know, Low borrowing costs and lots of support would obviously lead to higher asset prices. Um, so with these high asset prices, that 
is really helping a lot of consumers feel really good about the economy, right? It's the real wealth effect. So this, you, so this story of the easy Fed has led to high asset prices and then has led to a real wealth effect. And then along the way comes this COVID thing, which disrupted supply, disrupted workers, disrupted workplaces. And so it, it, this started out with what felt like a temporary supply shock and now is really turning into a more, um, you know, a, a more um, persistent type of inflation because it really, this supply problem is not really getting better. And the root of the supply problem is in the amount of workers. And so all around the world, uh, COVID caused a lot of people to change their jobs, work in different ways, or just flat out retire. So when you have less workers, you have less supply. So on one hand, you have the Fed um, sort of inducing high asset prices, which makes people feel wealthy and spendy. And on the other hand, you have less and less workers. And so that creates less supply. So it's just classic, you know, demand outstripping supply. You talk about the Fed's role in controlling inflation, um, but also keeping full employment. You know, what what exactly are some of the tools at their disposal to fight or combat inflation? Yeah, so the Fed, um, the Fed has, well, the, the Fed is in uncharted territory trying to combat inflation. <laughs> so if you think about uh, the last 13 years, the Fed has been fighting deflation. And, and so we have uh, sort of institutionalized into the staff and the mindset in the last decade plus of almost, uh, you know, obviously how the Fed operates, but also a lot of investment professionals and a lot of uh, consumers really have you know, looking back, only know of a world where there's low inflation and low interest rates. And and so their role has been um, for a long time to fight, to fight deflation. And they've done that by keeping interest rates really low, inducing borrowing, uh, helping uh, asset prices go higher and people feel wealthier, and then they get spendier, and then they have QE. So as it stands today, you've got a 0% interest rate policy at the Fed, which um, the, the Fed funds rate is zero. And that's the tool number one is the Fed funds rate. And tool number two is QE or QT. And they are still participating in QE, which is buying longer dated bonds to try to push interest rates down to keep borrowing costs low, to try to induce a better economy and higher uh, asset prices. And so, so far to date, the two tools that the Fed has, they have not used at all. And what's resulted now is you have a Fed funds rate that is at zero and inflation that is over seven. That's the widest margin in history. The Fed is really behind the curve here. Yeah, so I think we got the number out yesterday or maybe the day before and it was seven and a half percent was sort of a year over year. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're sitting here saying that Fed funds rate is zero. So how are you combating a seven and a half percent rate with zero? And we're talking about 25 basis point jumps or, you know, four rate hikes, six rate hikes. It just depends on, you know, who you're listening to, but how, how is that truly combating anything? It's not, in my mind, it's not combating anything. And in fact, the, the Fed has really gotten us into a risky situation because I think most professional investors and most people that think logically about markets and the Fed and their role in the economy and the Fed would say, oh, they're actually acting irresponsible now, which can lead to volatility, right? So I think an important thing, I want to make two important comments about inflation that hopefully be memorable to the investors, right? So the, the, the first is that through um, 
through the entire history of inflation, almost every time inflation's risen more than 3%, it's led to a recession. Okay. So inflation historically has led to a recession. And, and we can dig into that. Now, that's a whole nother presentation of, of why that happens. But if you just simply pull up an inflation chart, look at every single time it rises, there it's quickly, you know, sooner or later followed by a recession. And, and the second thing is that I want listeners to know is that through the entire history of inflation, where we've tracked it here in the United States, the, the Fed funds rate has been above inflation persistently up until 2009. And post-2009, we've kept the Fed funds rate below inflation. And now we have the widest margin in history. And if you look at your history, not in the last 12 years, but you look at your history since 1950, where we have accurate records of all this stuff, the Fed funds rate has been historically above inflation. So you talk, you know, the market's talking about five or six interest rate hikes to fight inflation. The Fed has to put the Fed funds rate above inflation. So think about that. That's like 20 rate hikes. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So not and only that, why, but I mean, the, and, the and way that's monetary why, policy works, at least the way I understand it, is it's also at a lag too, correct? I mean, it's not just like this works overnight. So they're already lagging because they're at the widest margin ever in history. And then secondly, the impact of what the Fed does has a lag. So they're, that's a really great point. They're doubly behind the curve here. And, and, and to me, you know, you say, you say, well, investors have felt really good about investing and being risk-seeking. Obviously, we're, we're in an environment that seems risk-seeking. It feels like the late 90s with all of the accoutrements of, um, you know, funny things going on in the market and investors extending their risks into all sorts of different categories. So you have this environment of risk seeking because everybody's felt great about investing because it's all been backstopped by the Fed. And now the Fed is so far behind, it feels almost irresponsible. And that's why I think you're seeing this volatility because professional investors are like, wait a minute, this isn't organized. This isn't methodical. And um, and now the Fed, you know, now the Fed's talking about raising rates by 50 basis points at the next two meetings, which would quickly put it at one. Right. So you're talking about risk seeking being something that reminds you of the 90s. Um, you know, I'm getting close to 40 years of age and I've never seen inflation like this in my lifetime. So, you know, inflation seems to be more like the late 70s, early 80s. You know, how do you think this compares to the last time the country saw significant inflation, which would have been around that, that time period, late 70s, early 80s? Yeah, that's great because I've spent a good part of you know my my extracurricular studying as a as a strategist and an investment professional. You have to jump from subject to subject when it becomes relevant and brush up on it and you know restudy stuff, right? And so I've, I've spent a good part of the last you know year like rereading and studying and history and, and and inflation and and you know from what I've read, this is very similar to the '70s. And so here's the the you know the this the movie storyboard of the '70s was that in the '60s we had a great period of prosperity that was backstopped by the by the Fed, and there was never enough 
there was never enough. The economy was never good enough. And so you get into this cycle where the where everybody gets used to an accommodative Fed and everybody gets used to high asset prices and everybody wants prosperity and nobody wants to pull the Band-Aid off, right? And so the 60s was a time of great prosperity and an easy Fed. And then in the 70s, you had this supply shock right? From commodities, well, oil supply shock, and you had a war. Now, we had definitely have a supply shock today, uh, which has this is, is sort of a, a worker supply shock because we have a shortage of workers. And remember, a shortage of workers at first hits supply, less supply, right? And then secondly, a shortage of workers eventually will lead to less demand. And so we're sort of in a negative spiral with that. And so they had a supply shock in the 70s as well, which set the whole thing off. So, uh, and the Fed in the 70s was incredibly behind the curve. They just didn't believe it. And so then it was a few years of kind of getting out of control. Yeah. Help the listener understand what the Fed's target for inflation is versus, you know, where inflation is at if we're just looking at, you know, know, consumer price index, because it it seems that the Fed is not really looking at seven and a half as long-term inflation. They've got their own targets. So help us understand maybe what the Fed is truly looking at versus what we see. Yeah. From what what I understand, the Fed is looking at PCE and more core aspects. And, but you know, it starts with, you know, when there's no inflation, and they're fighting deflation, they pick the measure that's going to have a, a, a higher number because they're fighting deflation and they want a measure that makes them look better at what they're doing, right? And so PCE generally runs a little stabler and a little lower than CPI and, and it's more core. And so, you know, the, PC, the PCE has been lower than, than the CPIU. Uh, the CPIU also has food and energy in it. And so you could, you know, so it, they jump around in what they state though, you know? Um, so I believe that the measure they're really following is PCE and the, and the, and the goal would be 2% inflation. Um, and then they change that goal to around 2% inflation. <laughs> and so I don't think seven and a half is around two. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, not, not really in the same ballpark. Nah. Yeah, exactly. So I tell this story to, to clients all, all the time that it, it seems like it's, it's hitting inflation in different areas, especially, you know, what you talk about with supply, but, you know, my little boy was playing wiffle ball out in my driveway and he swings this bat. He hits the side view mirror of my car and his backswing. It it took like three months to get the glass in to replace the side view mirror. And my daughter is, you know, doing youth cheerleading and it took, I I think like 12 weeks to get some of the materials in to make some of these outfits. So, I mean, we're, we're seeing these delays in the supply chain. and, And I know that that, it's going to be temporary and it's going to get back to normal at some point. But I, I don't know that the average person is is truly optimistic that inflation is just going to go away or even subside or get back to two. It just kind of seems like it might redefine itself as the new norm because we've, we've had, you know, roughly you know, 20 years of zero inflation. So, I mean, what, what do you see things looking like on the other side of this if there is another side of it? Well, I mean, of course, inflation's not just going to go up forever. We're not like a, you know, you know, we're not going to let things get completely out of control. And and one thing I think it's important to know with inflation is that it's gone up seven and a half percent in the last twelve months. But it's it'd be kind of a long shot for it to go up seven and a half percent in the next twelve months because it has to go from this level and then up another seven and a half. So so it's likely that the forward twelve months inflation might be below seven and a half, but it's going to be a 
a pretty healthy number still, right? And and the two things that people talk about is is workers and supply chain. And I think when they talk about supply chain, they think it's some sort of COVID centric problem, and it's not. And at least I'm sorry, it, I don't believe it is. <laughs> Maybe it is. I mean, as we know in investing, there's a lot. Of, the world can pan out the way the world wants to pan out, but I don't believe it's. Um, um, temporary. I think it has more permanent aspects to it. And so one of the things that, that was a big ba- driver of earnings uh, for you know large corporations and manufacturers in, in the United States and, and in the first world countries has been their ability to outsource to Asia, right? Or to Latin America. And if you're the wealthy countries in the first world, and then you have a demand spike and you say, well, I don't want to, op- my, my economy is no longer 2% GDP growth. Now it's like 7% GDP growth. Well, that means you're just exponentially buying more and more goods from overseas. And so that's, so, so if you think about that, what if all the world's goods came from one place? Well, if you operate in the slow and low at 2% GDP, maybe that they could actually service the world with all the goods. But if you bump that up, you know, that you triple that demand. Or the growth rate, you you know, you triple the growth rate, and you vastly increase the demand for all those goods from one place in the world. It becomes extremely difficult for that one place to efficiently service the entire world. So that's number one. It, the 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 so it. I don't think it's temporary. I think it's an imbalance of how much we've put on outsourcing and manufacturing overseas. So so to fix that, we have to onshore. Well, onshore is extremely expensive, extremely time-consuming, uh, and and um, it will take years to build the factories and manufacturing that we need on onshore. And so, I mean, so and you know, to to clarify this, to further clarify this point, there are tons of ships full of goods that have already been manufactured. They just can't get it to market. Right. So that's a, you know, you could say that's a lack of ships or a lack of ports or a lack of trucks, a lack of workers, but it's really a lack of workers. So if you're going to have to onshore all this stuff and it's going to be expensive and time consuming, and then you're going to need workers. But the problem, the real root of this whole thing is is the workers. We have less workers than they do. Right. And so it comes down to the workers. And what people need to get into their head is if you disrupt the working, the way people work, and more and more people choose to work either for themselves or they choose to um, retire, <laughs> right? Uh, we lost 3 million people to retirement last year. That's the biggest year ever, right? And this is going to go on, right? So the way to look at all those people leaving the workforce or working differently in the workforce is less workers equals less supply, which magnifies the supply chain problem. So they're tied together. So that's why it's not temporary. You're talking about onshoring and, and that being expensive. I think the market really, at least to me, kind of viewed some of the financials that had started to report a few weeks ago whenever they really indicated they were seeing wage inflation and just it was just more expensive to, to hire these workers. And it's, you know, I don't see that that's really going away. So wow. on top of it, just being we have less workers trying to do the same job. I mean, to your point, it truly is more expensive because we've got wage inflation on top of it. So there's been two, and so this is where it really gets to, like, does it affect the economy? Does it affect asset prices? How is this all going to affect us, right? So so if you, there's been two drivers. There's been, I believe, one driver of the economy that's really taken the slow and low economy and turned it into a booming economy. And that has been high asset prices. And so 
if the Fed is backstopping asset prices, asset prices can run higher uninterrupted for a longer period of time. And then the economy is great. Everybody feels rich, right? And then you throw into this equation that, oh, high asset prices are okay because the economy is good and these businesses are making so much money. Profit margins are through the roof. Well, why are profit margins through the roof? I mean, I'm not like, you know, I think that the businesses we have today are incredible. I think the profits are incredible. I think the economy is incredible, but there's a reason why this is all happening. And so if you think about, well, why are earnings so good, right? Well, earnings are so good because we have low interest rates. We have low inflation. We have ample workers. We've, we have, um, you know, uh, shareholder um, primacy. What shareholder primacy is, is, is that shareholders get the lion's share of the profits of the business and the workers get less. And, and, and then, and then you, you know, you and then you have lots of leverage and you're able to build leverage on top of each other. Now, so let's reverse that equation. What if we had higher interest rates? What if we had um, more inflation? What if we had the inability to uh, globalize and cost cut and we had the inability to uh, hire cheap workers? Uh, we all of this has pivoted, right? So with the Fed going at raising rates. It makes the stock market look vulnerable and the inflation fed combo makes the earnings look vulnerable. So that's where, that's exactly what we're seeing today in the marketplace. All right. So let's, uh, let, let's, let's try to gaze into uh, Jeremy's crystal ball here. You know, if we, if we've got, you know, persistent inflation, we got supply chain disruptions, what do you think is going to be hit harder? Do you think it's going to be the growth equity space that we've seen, you know, a, a big sell-off to start the year sort of sustained there? Or do you think it's going to be fixed income? Or do you think both? I mean, what, what, are, yeah. what are your opinions on what do you think is going to get hit the hardest? Yeah. So, well, the obvious, like, I mean, I feel like, um, I feel like investing is a bit of a chess game, but sometimes it's like a 3D chess game, right? And so <laughs> you can't, you can't look at the, you know, the, the first sigma event or the first move of change. You need to look at multiple change events, right? And so the first linear leap that everybody makes is, well, if interest rates are going to rise, bonds are not going to perform well, right? But it's not that simple. So what happens is when the Fed raises the Fed funds rate, the Fed funds rate is the short-term rate. It's not the market-derived rate. So if I made this supposition that or just you know this uh, kind of abrupt statement that hopefully is pretty memorable that through history the Fed has had the Fed funds rate above inflation, even when they weren't fighting inflation, they had the Fed funds rate above inflation. So that would imply a lot of pressure on the short end of the yield curve, right? The short end. And now I'm gonna, I'm gonna now now I'm gonna go back to the 70s. In the 70s, the yield curve was inverted almost the entire period, inverted. What that meant was the Fed funds rate was above the, the tenure. Now take today and ask anybody in the marketplace who owns bonds or invests in bonds, do you think inflation's happening? <laughs> do you think the Fed's <laughs> going to tighten? Do you think there's volatility in stocks and it's because we're going to have higher interest rates? Do you, think any, do you think any of that's a surprise to people? So I actually think the bond market has been incredibly strong. With 10-year treasuries at 2% and the Fed funds rate, uh, I mean, the Fed funds rate at zero 
and inflation at seven. You you really instead of have to say instead of saying oh the entire bond market is going to get clobbered, it actually impacts short, intermediate, and credit all differently. And so right. and so just just remember the Fed probably has to get a lot more aggressive on the short end than anybody thinks. And in the seventies, the yield curve was inverted, which means that longer dated bonds are not as scary as people think. So that's the sure they can lose money if interest rates go up, but but I think the reason they haven't already gone up because you know assets price in advance of the move of the change, and the reason they haven't priced in advance is either bond investors are really dumb, or they've already considered all this and they like the interest rates at two because they think the Fed is going to be successful. If the Fed is successful, remember back to the beginning of this call, they will cause a recession. And if they cause a recession, then interest rates have to come back down. So long dated, 10 years from now, they're saying, yeah, two is a good number. So that kind of explains where we are right now with the bond market, but then we have the stock market, right? And so the stock market is particularly vulnerable here because we have more money at play in the stock market, which is more important to our economy and more important to our consumers than ever before in history. In the 70s, you didn't have everybody investing in the stock market. Today, you do. In the 70s, you didn't have a huge lump of people retiring and depending on investing. Today, you do, right? So this stock market Mm -hmm. thing is pretty important. And so far, what we've seen is the stock market does not like this at all. And the bond market's fine with it. So if the market is the leading indicator, it's telling you something. It's telling you the market thinks the risk is in the stocks. And why does the market think the risk is in the stocks? A, because they're pricey. And B, the justification for the prices has been really strong earnings. And the strong earnings are going to come under attack here from higher prices, the worker problem, the supply chain problem, uh, you know, all those things I mentioned. And so it looks like the volatility is going to be in the stock market. The market's telling us that. But, Great it'll, take. Pro- um, but it'll probably be in both. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's, there, there's, there's no doubt that there, there's going to be volatility in both, but that's, that's a really yeah. good point that, you know, the, the market is a leading indicator there. So, yeah. you know, hey, we've, we, we've eaten up about 25 minutes of time, so we want to be uh, respectful of your time. But thank you so much for, for joining us today and talking about, you know, the Fed, how they fight inflation and just kind of your takes on the labor market, interest rate policy. It sounds like we've, we've, we've got a long way to go here and we're not out of the woods just yet. So thank you for the words of wisdom. Thank you for having me, Matt. This was, uh, this was fun for me and, and um, hope to talk to you soon sometime. For more content from Jeremy, you can listen to his podcast, Deconstructing Alpha, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also read his commentary at frontierasset.com. You can follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Matt Rush SFP. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to be notified as new episodes are released. And if you're interested in our firm or would like to contact me, check us out online at strategicfinancialpartners.com.